This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds, where together with my co-host Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds to explore a compliance or compliance-related topic. Today, we take a topic from recent headlines, which was the disastrous testimony by the presidents of MIT, Harvard, and the University of Pennsylvania before Congress around their anti-discrimination policy and how it applies to uh, students who attack uh, Jews and Israel by claiming they want genocide against Israel for its invasion of Hamas. We take a look at what it means and, more importantly, lessons learned for the compliance professional. It's a fascinating episode. It's one literally ripped from the headlines, and it's one I know you'll enjoy going forward. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Welcome back, Matt. Hello, Tom. Happy to be here. Matt, we usually have relatively new or recent news, but we're going to rip one from the headlines today, and that is the testimony last week from a certain private colleges in front of Congress around their discrimination and anti-discrimination policies, the fallout for those universities, and the resignation of University of Pennsylvania President uh, Liz McGill. And uh, you want to set the stage for, oh, and then we're going to tie it directly, I think, to the role of the chief compliance officer and how they need to counsel their organizations in matters of, uh, I guess, delicacy, if I could use that word. Uh, Well, I'm glad that you did put that in at the end, because I do think, Tom, this is certainly a very gripping piece of news, no matter what. But uh, it does offer some very poignant and pointed lessons for compliance officers, CEOs, and boards about um, cutting through the legal niceties to get down to the moral heart of the matter that might be at stake here. Uh, but what happened was the three presidents of Harvard University of, of major colleges, Harvard University, which is one mile from my house in one direction, MIT, which is one mile from my house in the other direction, and the University of Pennsylvania, which is several hundred miles south of where I live. Uh, but there are three presidents uh, appeared before the House Education Committee to talk about uh, basically the anti-Semitism that is currently going on at these campuses and probably others that I can't think of off the top of my head, but uh, all of the tension that has emerged since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. And we have people who are demanding that uh, we take a very pro-Israel stance because they were attacked and they do have the right to defend themselves. Uh, Others who are saying that what Israel is doing to Gaza now in response is a terrible misdeed, and they're protesting that on these campuses and elsewhere. And so what is protected speech? What is anti-Semitism? What is discrimination? What really matters, which I think is a question that we have to keep in mind all of the time. But uh, these university presidents, they appeared in front of the Education Committee, and they did not do well. Um, And then most famously, Representative Elise Stefanik, who is a Republican from upstate New York, really tore into them. 
and uh, frankly tripped them all up with what I thought was a fairly easy line of questioning, if aggressive. But she was basically asking them if uh, calls for genocide of Jews would violate the harassment policies at these campuses. And all three presidents gave very dry, desiccated, lawyerly responses that were terrible. And uh, so far, the University of Pennsylvania president, as you said, she resigned over the weekend. Um, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard University, she just received an endorsement from Harvard's executive committee. That is basically the central board that governs Harvard. Uh, They have a very large board of board overseers. The executive committee of that board just endorsed her leadership this afternoon. So at least for now, she seems to be staying And then we also have MIT's president, Sally Kornbluth, uh, and I am not sure what her status is. Um, She's there at MIT today. I don't know if she may be forced out or not. Man, I really think uh, there are some very significant lessons for every chief compliance officer, and I want to start with the answers that these presidents gave to what I think you accurately described was a fairly straightforward question. And clearly, each of these university presidents had prepared, uh, been prepared by a law firm, been prepared to basically say nothing, and it came across absolutely terribly. I've watched each one of those clips multiple times, and almost as if the same law firm wrote the script for each one, but the question was fairly straightforward, and you articulated it quite well. Um, So that really leads to kind of the first point I want to explore is why a chief compliance officer needs to be, if not in control, certainly at the the head or near the head of the table when messaging comes out over some event that's going to impact multiple stakeholders. Because the legal response, the optics of it were just terrible, in my opinion. Uh, I agree. And I only watched in detail the grilling of Harvard's President Gay, and that alone was painful to watch. Um, But, Tom, you know, you and I have talked before about the importance of keeping the ethics and compliance function separate from legal. Like, This is what happens when you leave the lawyers in charge, Um, that sometimes they will get so wrapped up in the legal nuance of how to answer a question and how to avoid saying something that might incur some sort of liability somehow that, you know, they lose sight of the bigger picture, which is the ethics part here. The ethical value of people should feel safe on college campuses. Um, These are all private universities. I appreciate that they like to talk about academic freedom, but, you know, they're not the government. You don't actually have a right to free speech on a college campus. So they could have just cut through to the heart of the matter. And if there is somebody calling for violence or genocide against a certain person on the university campus, you know, I think it's kind of a no-brainer to say, yeah, that person should be booted off. And if they're students, they should be looking at suspension or expulsion. If they are just regular Joes wandering through, they should have the cops called and get a restraining order and keep them off. Like, you can answer that question. Um, and Congressman Stefanik was actually quite clear in at trying to get yes or no questions. And all three presidents, you know, like, they never actually would— volunteer to say yes. They would not volunteer to say no. It was 
always these lawyerly, squirrely sort of um, nuanced answers that didn't answer a yes or no question. And, um, you know, what did they think was going to happen? I often come back to saying that, but uh, that really does seem like an apt response here. Each of the responses was along the lines of the following. Well, you have to take each utterance and each speech on its own. You have to determine if it was directed at anyone. The person who it was directed at has to make a complaint. There has to be an investigation. And there has to be a determination of intent. Um, and none of that is needed, period. Yep. End of statement. And um, I guess the that really leads to maybe exploring, there are obviously multiple stakeholders here. And every university has multiple stakeholders. Private universities, perhaps, but only perhaps, have one less stakeholder. And that's uh, state university reports to the governor of the state of they live in or the state the university is located or board of trustees appointed by the governor so that there's a governmental oversight. But there's students, there's professors, there's alumni, there's the faculty, there's the administration, uh, but there's a greater public out there. And neither you nor I, I believe, went to Ivy League schools, but it does not diminish my respect for them as academic institutions and in many ways thought leaders in academia across the United States. So perhaps there's even that stakeholder group. How do you begin to think through navigating something that complex? Or is that just something every business, every chief compliance officer needs to be ready to do? Well, you know, first, Tom, I'd like to back up and talk a little bit more about Congressman Stefanik and the preface and the groundwork that she laid before she actually asked the presidents, is this a violation of your code of conduct or not? Um, Because it illuminates an important point. What Congressman Stefanik actually said, and I watched it again, uh, watched her interrogation of President Gay just this afternoon. um, She asked whether students leading the cheer, which students at Harvard were doing last week, um, a cheer, quote, only one solution, intifada revolution, globalize intifada. Uh, that was their cheer. And intifada is an uprising of uh, Palestinians against their Israeli government that has been occupying the West Bank and Gaza Strip for decades now. But you know, the intifada is very clearly seen as a call for armed uprising and violence against the Israelis who are occupying Palestinian territory. Um And so Congressman Stefanik said, is that a call for genocide or not? Because I, Congressman Stefanik, I think it is. President Gay, don't you think that too? And President Gay eventually said, yes, she did. But my point in calling all of this out is that I do suspect at least some of the students who were, you know, frankly, just morons for engaging in this behavior at all, I don't know that they did know that that's what the intifada actually means. And it calls out the distinction that are you responsible as a speaker for what you say or are you responsible for what people hear? Because those are often not the same things. Um, I suspect that there are some pro-Palestinian voices in America who have no idea that intifada, when heard by somebody who's Jewish, is genocide. That's what they think. And they might say, well, that's not what I meant at all. I only said from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I didn't say the word genocide, but that is what the Jewish community would hear. And 
I think that's an important point to remember that when we talk about large corporate organizations, corporations, universities, countries, you have all these various constituencies, um, there is going to be this discrepancy between what you say and what somebody else hears from your word, what they interpret. Um, and this is going to come up time and again, and it is up to the leaders of that corporate organization to try and figure that out and to try to balance all of their interests as much as possible. Um, I don't really think that pro-Palestinian people should have no freedom of speech whatsoever on a college campus or the United States. I'm not entirely comfortable with all the implications of that. I do think they shouldn't be allowed to call for the genocide of anybody, Jews or anybody else. But what is the call? Is it them specifically saying it has to be genocide? Does that word have to be uttered? Is it just that uh, ridiculous little song about Palestine from the river to the free, uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free? Does that is that a call for genocide or not? Um, who gets to decide what those words mean? And that's the challenge for corporate leaders. How do we define what the meaning is behind various words various groups in our enterprise might use? Um, and compliance officers, ethics and compliance officers specifically, because I think the ethics part plays a big, big-ish role here. Like they have to be able to help the senior leaders cut through all of the chaff and say, keep your eye on the moral ball and keep your moral clarity intact. This is what ultimately we have to prevent is certain groups feeling terrified that they're about to be exterminated by another group. So let's figure out how to make that work. It is an important conversation to have. I don't presume to know how to have it about the Israeli-Palestinian issue or many other issues, but that's the thing that senior leaders have to think about is, you know, what are we saying and what are other groups hearing? And if those messages are in conflict, how do we get that resolved in a way that makes moral sense and squares with our ethical values? And that's the thing that all three presidents, like, they were terrible at trying to explain that the other day. It's, I think, one level to think about that and talk about that internally to a corporation when you think you might have to comment publicly. These three presidents were called to testify before Congress, and they knew they were going to have to answer this question. A CEO may be called to testify in front of Congress, and he better or she better be prepared to answer these questions, because at that point, if you don't answer it, it's even worse, yes. which is what we saw. I mean, I um, think that people follow leadership, they follow clarity, and you know, n neither of those things were present in the answers last week. What about the um, pushback now? Uh, obviously, uh, former President McGill from Penn has resigned largely. Uh, well, we don't largely know, but she did resign. And there were certain alumni who pushed for that, uh, Bill Ackerman has uh, been very vocal in his displeasure with uh, um, Harvard's response to this and has been very public about that. I'm sure there's equal responses on both sides from MIT. Is that something that a university president or business leader needs to take into account? I mean, yes, they do. Uh, I'm not entirely comfortable with that reality because I don't love the idea that rich people get to throw their weight around and their weight is their money. 
but we'd be foolish to acknowledge that reality. Uh, yeah, sure. If all of your rich donors say, we're going to close up our checkbooks and you don't get any more of our money, that's an important thing for a university president. You know, Half of their job is trying to court uh, donors and keeping the alumni association on their side. There's a lot of different constituencies that you are trying to court. Um, Bill Ackman is making a valid point in probably the most, you know, inartful and irritating way, um, basically saying, you know, I'm rich and I'm going to deny my money to groups that I don't want to deal with. Fine. Nobody's saying you have to, but he is making a very you know, loud and vociferous case that, you know, he didn't necessarily have to do. He could have just closed up his checkbooks. And I'm not quite sure where the line is between taking your money away because you disagree with an organization's values and using your money as a threat to change an organization's values when, you know, he's not a Harvard faculty. I don't know that he went to Harvard. I don't, he didn't go to Harvard, uh, to MIT. Um, so, you know, why do you get to show up and boss people around and change their values to your will just because you're rich? I see the point of that line of criticism. Um, and like I said, there's a difference between taking your money and walking away from a group that doesn't share your values and using your money as a threat to change an organization's values. Harvard has some thinking to do about what it's doing and MIT as well, but I don't know that a bunch of hedge fund guys dictating their their um, their views is really going to be the most productive way to get that resolved. I guess maybe uh, I'd at least like to end on um, the point I tried to make, which was the university presidents knew they were going to be questioned on this. A business leader may not believe or understand they're going to have to answer a question on this. But in this day and age with multiple stakeholders and the heightened political uh, debate, at least in this country, I think this is a discussion business leaders need to have with their chief compliance officers, with their legal officers, with their communications officers, because this is another type of risk. And I advocate managing your risk through assessing it and then being ready to address it. And it just seems to me that this type of conversation, as unpleasant it may be, as it may be, or unusual for the corporate world, I think they need to start having more of these discussions because it may be one thing for a CEO to be asked that as he's walking from a meeting to a meeting, but it's quite another to have to do it formally in front of Congress. Well, I, I do agree that if you were going to be questioned in front of Congress, yes, you know, you should prepare and think through what am I really going to say here. Um, on the other hand, Tom, I'm not entirely sure that we need to overthink it to that degree. Um, I keep coming back to like what I've mentioned once or twice before. What is the moral clarity that needs to pierce through this conversation? And ultimately, an easy way to do that for these college presidents would be to think, if my Jewish child was in a dorm room while they were chanting that outside, does, you know, would I want them to hear that? Would I fear for them? Um, you know, what would be the right answer there? And I think most people, if they put themselves in those shoes, would say, yeah, the right answer is that you don't get to call for somebody else's genocide. That's uh, harassment. That's a violation of common decency and the code of conduct. And let's bounce the person who's calling for the genocide off campus. 
that seemed like a fairly straightforward answer to me. But Tom, what I'm really getting at here is that is about having empathy for somebody who is not you and trying to put yourself in their shoes to be able to see how should my how should I respond? And if you're a leader, how should my organization respond? And we have talked before about the importance of empathy for good ethical leadership. That's a conversation that a ethics and compliance officer could have with the chief executive if the opportunity comes up. It's like sometimes this stuff doesn't have to be lawyered to death. Sometimes it really is as simple as sitting down and thinking, you know, how would I be empathetic for the victim here? I'm not quite sure who the victim would always be in every situation, but when we're talking about somebody calling for genocide outside your dorm room, the one inside the dorm room is the victim. And I get it that there are going to be pro-Palestinian voices who say that, you know, the Gazans who are being killed by the Jewish or by the Israeli defense forces, they're the victims. I get that too. But I'm taking this one case at a time. And right now we're talking about university presidents who couldn't figure out the right way to express empathy and moral clarity for what was, to me, a fairly straightforward question. Even if it was asked in a very aggressive tone, even if it was asked by Congressman Stefanik, who I do not think is an honest broker here in raising these issues, she's looking to score political points, and that's that. But occasionally, you can be a dishonest broker raising political points and still get a valid question kicked up here that we have to uh, think about. Matt, that seems like a great way for us to end this podcast. I look forward to our next recording. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Compliance in the Weed. We've linked to Matt's blog posts on this topic in the show notes. I hope you will check out the blog post for more information. I also hope you will listen to some of the new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. We premiered a podcast uh, with Richard Lundell on sustainability, the business opportunity of the 21st century, Fox on podcasting, where I take a meta look at podcasting and compliance and AI. We are also developing some additional new shows, which will premiere in July. It's quite an exciting time on the Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, please give me a shout. I'm available at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.